This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm here with my friend Samo Buria. Uh, I have a podcast uh, with him that you will hear where I will talk about Bismarck analysis, his philosophy of uh, understanding historical processes and, and these great men and agents uh, that are operating in the world around us. But uh, since I last talked to him, um, stuff has happened. Um, I like to keep the podcast evergreen. So you can listen to them whenever you want to listen to them. Uh, and that's kind of what I tried to do with the previous one. But, um, you know, Putin has invaded uh, Ukraine. And we're all talking about it. We're all thinking about it. Uh, we're talking about nuclear war again. And so I want to talk to Samo about it. Um, the reason I want to talk to him is because he thinks about things like this. And he's written about things like this. And I honestly, when I recorded the podcast, I just thought he was, uh, you know, how, how should I say? I thought Putin was fooling. He was trying to, like, you know, do a little intimidation. Maybe he would take, you know, parts of the Donbass. I don't know. I did not think anything like this would happen. So my prior expectations were totally uh, overturned. Um, you know, I have opinions, but, you know, I've just admitted right now that my model of the world is clearly off in some deep way. And so here I am talking to Samo and uh, uh, Samo, like, well, what are you thinking? What have, what have you been saying? Like, what have you been inferring? What have you been concluding? Where were you wrong? Where have you updated? I mean, just all the basics. Let, let's get into it. Yes. It's very important to keep track of what is expected and what isn't expected. I think that when it comes to war, the animal spirits come out and dominate, uh, you know, even seemingly very reasonable people. You could feel in the social media landscape of the last two weeks over the invasion that, you know, the whole Western world has gone through uh, some kind of psychological uh, tumult, maybe, you know, the five stages of grief or something like this. Even you saw desperation, anger, surprise, all these things mixed together. And I think one of the things people must be aware of is that they are not following this news in a neutral algorithmic environment. So there's not just, you know, the general bias of the population, uh, you know, working sort of to essentially work out on whose team you are rather than establish the facts on the ground. There's also outright algorithmic manipulation, um, you know, of course, happening from the Western side and the Eastern side, right? There's obviously within Russia, the media environment is also deeply disconnected from reality. They uh, are referring to this still as a special military operation, but really this is a full-blown Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, having said all of these things, let me go to the basics. First, anyone who claims that the Russians were planning on Ukraine collapsing within a day or two, I think that's just that's just incorrect. Um, I think it's been clear from the start that the buildup was a buildup for a very significant intervention. This kind of buildup isn't made 
you know, it's not made with the purpose of just, you know, a small, quick surgical strike, right? So it also doesn't really match Russian military doctrine on any level. So I would actually say that one of the things that I think has gone basically to my expectations is that the Russian army is waging a mechanized war. That is a war that moves at the speed of tanks, not the speed of tweets. The second point where I actually feel, you know, the predictions sort of made right before uh, the invasion, the analysis given right before the invasion uh, proved correct was the fact that the Russians did not pursue air supremacy at any any stage of this campaign. Russian forces have been designed for nearly 40 years, and especially through the reforms of the last 15 years, to deny air supremacy to NATO and the United States with really thick, meshed anti-air defenses. Then how do you provide firepower if all you're trying to do is deny air supremacy to your enemy Well, you provide firepower with artillery. And uh, the Russians have very mobile artillery. Uh, They have drones that improve the accuracy of their artillery. There's an argument that it's much more cost-effective than the Western approach, as long as you're willing to lose hardware and lose personnel. You know, you can probably lose 10, 20, 50 artillery pieces before it is as consequential as losing a single modern fighter in purely economic or strategic terms. But this brings me to the first surprise, something that did surprise me. The initial Russian invasion, and this is a contrarian take, and it should not be understood to be an endorsement at all of Putin's aims. I think uh, the war is unjust for what that's worth. The morality of it is is clear. Um, It was surprisingly gentle. They didn't use any of their heavy artillery at first on the cities, population centers, hospitals, and so on. This is now starting. I think we should remember that, you know, when the 2003 invasion of Iraq happened, you know, we bombed power plants, we bombed airports. The Russians tried to seize airports, right? It seemed like they were willing just through the fact of invasion to leave the door open to a surrender. I don't think they were planning on a Ukrainian surrender. I think they were hoping for a Ukrainian surrender. Um, And really, you know, hoping versus something actually going outside of your contingency plans, these are two very different things. So yeah, honestly, my first surprise when the invasion happened was that it wasn't brutal from the start. Now, two weeks in, it is becoming brutal, especially as sieges of various urban uh, you know, various urban centers like Mariupol and so on and Kiev itself, right? Kiev, I guess, is where now pronouncing it. Um, you know, these are going to require an artillery-based approach. It won't be fighting street after street. I, you know, it sort of, it does sadden me, especially since I, you know, I grew up in a former, former Yugoslav country. A lot of my classmates growing up were kids that were just clearly traumatized by the events of cities like, you know, the fights around cities like Sarajevo, when they, uh, you know, went to Slovenia from places like Bosnia as refugees. So to me, this is like still a little bit personal to contemplate. I don't want parts of Kiev to look like Sarajevo and Bosnia during the Yugoslav wars or to look like, uh, you know, 
the city of Grozny in Chechnya, right? Chechnya being now part of the Russian Federation, was part of the Russian Federation. And uh, I think that that outcome, however, seems pretty likely. So I was surprised that they tried a quote-unquote gentler, coercive political approach first, but now they seem to be reintroducing artillery. The second thing that surprised me uh, was that the combination of a professional armed corps of the military, like a professional soldier corps, plus a conscript, you know, sort of backbone. Uh, on paper, this looked like it would work excellently, but it's been working less well than I thought. It's not quite true when Western experts say that this is a conscript military, uh, but it is true that basically conscripts are shown to be less militarily effective even when supplemented by like this professional core of the military. So I do actually think the Russians have had problems with training and morale that I would not have predicted. When it comes to logistics, I actually think the Russians are doing fine. And on, again, on purely military grounds, they're moving about as fast as mechanized warfare allows. Mechanized warfare and war in general was always a shit show, if I, if I can even use that term on, on air. Um, if we had smartphones during any major operation in 2003, 1991, you know, if I'm, I'm here, I'm talking about the first and second Gulf War, let alone smartphones during World War II, during the Blitzkrieg, we would have a never ending stream of video of abandoned vehicles, captured vehicles, vehicles out of fuel, uh, soldiers deserting, and so on. Um, war is just always a terrible, terrible mess. Even something that historically seems beautiful, smooth, if bloody, like the invasion of Normandy, um, you know, the landings in Normandy when uh, the Allies pushed out Germans out of uh, France, even those, if you read the diaries, the reflections of people rather than the propaganda of the time, they have these never-ending complaints about how it's a clown show. Humans are hard to organize. Logistical problems are hard to overcome. The Russian logistics are a little bit of a clown show, but my argument would be that graded on a curve, this is a B minus. Logistics were always a clown show for all militaries. It's just now we can see it. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate, uh, you know, uh, your very succinct uh, outline of what's going on here. Um, you yourself are of a, uh, you're, you know, you're European, you're Slovenian. Um, literally the first day of the invasion, I started getting messages, sometimes from people I barely knew, but they just wanted to talk to someone uh, from Europeans, like people, mostly they're American academics. And, you know, uh, they are, were just in shock. Uh, can you tell me, like, from your network of Europeans, how are they feeling? Were they in shock? Uh, are you surprised by, um, I don't know, I feel like the sanctions and the rhetoric and the invective against the Russian invasion has been pretty intense, uh, you know, in light of I don't know, relative dovishness from places like Germany and the presence of parties that are kind of Putin aligned in places like in Italy. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the European perspective is fairly sympathetic to Ukraine for obvious reasons. 
But underneath the surface, I think there are very different views of what's going on. If you're living right now in Spain or Portugal, um, I think this still feels like a very distant conflict. If you're living in Poland, it's very close to home, especially with uh, you know all of the, especially with all of the deep history, right? That that's in the region. Like this fear of Russian domination is a very recent, very well justified fear in Eastern Europe. And there is further a deep frustration with Germany that I hear expressed in private, but not yet in public, where sort of the view is, well, Germany's gotten us into this mess. The Germans, you know, have not been spending as much as they really should on defense, and they've been buying Russian gas. There's this fun, you know, there's this fun meme going around in Eastern European uh, message groups. It's uh, four flags, right? The American, uh, sorry, the Russian flag the German flag, the Polish flag, the Ukrainian flag. And it's like Poland, uh, sort of Poland to Ukraine, you know, weapons, uh, Ukraine to Poland, refugees. Uh, and then it's Germany to Russia, right? Germany to Russia, uh, dollars and euros, Russia to Germany, uh, natural gas. And then the line from Russia to Ukraine, obviously, is invasion. And the line from Germany to Poland is, uh, you know, sanctions for violating EU rules. It's easy to miss in all the noise. But a few days ago, uh, the European Union and Germany actually backing this this measure have imposed further sanctions, not on Russia, but on Poland and Hungary. So really, underneath the surface of European unity, there is a big like cleavage happening between Germany and Eastern Europe, where I won't say that the German public is in, is in favor of alignment with Russia. It's just that Germany is deeply energy dependent on Russia and also deeply, you know, deeply um, in conflict with any sort of cultural autonomy for places like Poland and Hungary they want to move in a different direction on uh, any of these social questions, right? Like, um, you know, like uh, LGBT rights and things like this. Okay. Um, so I guess like uh, or, uh, economics, um, I'm actually like a little struck by how quickly the American intelligentsia and the corporations and everything um, – and the government, you know, they did these sanctions really fast uh, and, you know, they shut off. I mean, basically, uh, American big tech is not going to be a thing in Russia, I think, soon. Um, you know, they went after SWIFT. There's these international transactions that are gone. I'm hearing that there are massive numbers of like thousands of Russian programmers are moving into Yerevan and Tbilisi. Uh, they're just crossing the border. Um, I know from my extended social network that, yes, Russia exports a lot of oil, but there's other things that are involved in our just-in-time economy uh, that have a Russian connection, and that's causing massive problems uh, for people that we will only know of downstream as the supply lines start to get gnarled. Um, I'm pretty worried and upset that people aren't talking about the economic consequences, and I am also a little annoyed because I feel like we were sold a bill of goods about globalization in the late 1990s. And, uh, you know, the institutions, the systems in terms of the robustness, um, I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, 
if Russia is a large economy and it's not a trivial economy and it's interconnected to other economies and now we're just going to do sanctions out of the blue what like how does that work and then you have the germans not to not dog on them but um you know they shut down their nuclear uh they're relying on russian energy all of this stuff um it just seems like a total and i'm going to use the word clusterfuck seems like a total clusterfuck um but i mean tell me i'm wrong Uh, i want i want to be wrong about this i think unfortunately you're not wrong you know, whenever someone says Russia is an irrelevant economy, its GDP is smaller than Spain's, I find this bizarre. This is considered an argument against uh, the relevance of Russia's economy, but really it should be an argument against the relevance of GDP as a measure, right? I think we've uh, allowed the representation of economies to obscure the underlying reality. And the underlying reality is, European energy is completely dependent on Russia. Like the extent to which natural gas, it's not just about warming homes, you know, in winter. It's actually natural gas rather than batteries is the current real complement to all of this European green energy stuff, right? So wind, solar, they all require a complement. And it's much easier to run natural gas you know, power plants on demand than it is to run coal on demand. You run coal 24-7, right? You run coal, uh, it's it's slower and it's also dirtier. So all of the green energy reduction emissions you see in Europe are actually subsidized by natural gas. Now, don't get me wrong, natural gas is cleaner than coal, but we've actually been growing, not reducing European dependency on this crucial export. Then we have all of these other things you mentioned, right? Fertilizers. Um, minerals, all of this stuff. And finally, the very fact that it's possible to cut out a major country like Russia, again, this is over 100 million people out of the global economy, even though it's for very good reasons. I guarantee you places like India, um, you know, places like Turkey, they will understand that you cannot participate in international institutions of globalization. You cannot participate in the international financial system without actively planning an alternative. They are all thinking, you know, if this can be done to Russia with good reason, sure, well, then, you know, this can be done to us as well, right? This can be done to Turkey. This can be done to India. This can be done to Pakistan. This can be done to Indonesia. And suddenly, participation or at least interoperability with alternative Chinese financial standards, with alternative institutions, uh, I think the incentive is there. I think we're going to see, first off, massive economic shocks in the West. We're already, um, I think, honestly, we're already messaging the inflation that was baked in because of the COVID measures and the COVID stimulus. This inflation is already being messaged as an effect of these sanctions. But really, we're, we're not, we're not going to be feeling the full extent of these sanctions until like four months down the line, in some cases, four or five years down the line, depending on exactly how these logistic chains work out. And then the political effect of deglobalization is going to be the most significant one. There will be an alternative system of trade. And for the first time in decades, if not a century, you might actually see two partially mutually incompatible, partially mutually compatible economic and trade systems. You might actually see something centered on China 
um, you know, China plus a much economically weaker Russia, but still a, a Russia that's participating with China, uh, a bunch of countries in the Belt and Road Initiative area, um, you know, hedging their bets, doing both the Western and the Chinese thing. And on the other end, the Western world. I think, you know, in some ways, maybe Europe and America are going to grow closer, but at least for Europe, the end of globalization is a much poorer world. Look, the reason Europe could basically stay rich while transitioning away from colonialism is that they they had the international order where it was possible to just import your energy and raw resources at reasonable prices, meanwhile, not having real industrial competitors yet. Right now, East Asia is just beating Europe on every industrial measure. On every technological measure, America is beating Europe. So really, what does Europe have left? What does Germany have left? I mean, of all of the European countries, France was perhaps the only one prepared for this because of its heavy reliance on nuclear, because of its desire to build an independent military base, right? An independent military industrial base. Uh, And even their perspective doesn't look that good. So, you know, really, I think the U.S. is going to be fine on a 20 or 30 year time scale. And I think for the next five years, the it's going to be hard economically for Europe. Things are going to be hard economically for the next five years. And I predict impoverishment over the next 30 to 40 years. All right. Um, Yeah. Um, Thanks for the truth. Uh, That's what we needed. Um, I, you know, um, really appreciate you taking time out to update us. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of your, predictions here are pretty much what i expected um i was hoping for something different but you know uh reality is what it is the truth is what it is and we got to go with it um i hope uh i i I hope there is um you know at least some demand for your services now in this multipolar geopolitically complicated world with a bismarck analytics uh i mean that's an upside maybe we can focus on i mean i i i sort of um we have had the largest uptick in business that we've seen uh, since uh, the pandemic began. At the start of the pandemic, we also saw an uptick in business. So, you know, I feel I feel uh, happy that I built a counter-cyclical business, a truly counter-cyclical business yeah. where demand goes up at the times when the market goes down. But on the other hand, I'm dismayed at, uh, you know, how good our growth has been. And I have to say... Uh, you know, I think my company is going to do very well over the next 10 years. And I view this as, unfortunately, an indicator that this is by far, this is not going to be the last crisis we see. A lot of these things are mutually reinforcing in an important way. I don't think we would have seen the invasion of Ukraine as we have seen it, were it not for the unique circumstances of the global pandemic, all of the problems that brought, and this unique opportunity strategically and tactically for Putin at the very end of it, at the very tail end of the pandemic. So after the situation with this war just starts to stabilize, there will again be openings where, you know, again, the West is distracted. These sort of institutions are sort of broken down. New economies have been established. Like really, like, let's think about it. If we keep Russia sanctioned for the next 10 years, we've created super Iran, Every sanction you can think of that's been levied against Russia has at one point been levied against Iran. 
right? In recent years, sure, the West has tried to become buddy buddy against with you know again with Iran, but you know this is not this is this is not going to end with the invasion of Ukraine. It's not going to even end with Putin being overthrown. I actually think he's going to definitely stay in power uh, two year for the next two years. But if he's overthrown five years from now or dies of natural causes, I think the next Russian leader is still going to be running a country that at that point will be really decoupled from the West economically and politically. And uh, whoever that leader is, he's not going to want to retreat from whatever territories have been grabbed from Ukraine either. All right. Um, I guess at this point, uh, you know, I think this is a sufficient update. Um, uh, I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the podcast. Uh, you know, I think that part of the podcast, uh, it is still relevant. Um, as Samuel just said, this is uh, <laughs> the rest of the podcast is a lot about Bismarck analytics and its philosophy uh, and the scholarship and the orientation and the ends. And um, since I recorded that podcast, uh, <laughs> Bismarck analytics has become a lot more relevant, as Samuel just said. And we know this empirically from, um, you know, divulging that business is booming. Um I feel like this is like a very bittersweet, uh, you know, observation because I, I like Samo, obviously, third time guest. I love talking to him and I want him to do well. But, uh, you know, the world is what it is. Um, I don't want to end on too dark of a note, but I feel a little bit like the COVID pandemic, which many of you know that I was pretty, my family was really early on. And I feel like we're really early on uh, compared to other Americans who are just going about their way, like pinning their Ukrainian flag symbols and uh, continuing as if we are some colossus that can just shut down another country's economy without blowback and consequences. I do not understand the lack of discussion uh, and preparation psychologically for what is to come. I just do not understand. Um, I disagree and am shocked by Putin's invasion. I think it's horrible. It's horrible for Russia. It's horrible for Russians. It's horrible for Ukraine. It's horrible for the world. You know, but it is a fact. And our immediate um, reflex towards sanctions and destruction of the infrastructure of norms of the ties of the global economy that we spent over a generation building up you know eviscerating the american working class outsourcing all of this stuff and now you know what we're just going to put sanctions on i mean I, I i'm just wondering if i'm insane uh that i'm kind of apoplectic about this because uh what was it all for then um, we have a big internal economy and we could have done some sort of, you know, just the kind of things that we were doing before globalization. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, geopolitics, war, military, let's focus on that. Uh, let's hope the Iran uh, Iraq, uh, Ukrainians, I uh, did a Joe Biden there, Iranians, uh, Ukrainians do okay. Um, as I'm recording right now, uh, the Russians are shelling uh, the cities and there is fear about, you know, food. Uh, there are articles now being published about the Ukrainian famine, the Holodomor, um, which I think the only positive here is like people get to learn about that so they, they know uh, what Stalin did, what the communist regime did. Uh, a lot of people don't know. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, over the long term, uh, I think that, you know, the world has radically transformed by this action. 
uh, of Putin and then our counter reaction. Now, I think it is quite plausible we would have to decouple anyway. Uh, I just wanted more of a discussion, uh, some lead time um, instead of this precipitous action, which seems more driven by uh, emotional reaction than rationality. So uh, with that, uh, uh, you know, listen to the rest of the podcast. Um, there's a lot to lot to digest. Uh, I know this is long, but you know what? Um, you should be paying attention to the world. You should be paying attention to geopolitics. You should be paying attention to Europe. Uh, this is this is you know, we're here right now. Um, this isn't the late 90s anymore. Um, and it's not, you know, the, the teens uh, when America got out of Iraq and. You know, there was like a short little Indian summer of of lack of concern about the world. Um, history has come back. Uh, geography has come back. Politics has come back. And so Bismarck Analytics is very relevant. So check it out. Check out the newsletter. This podcast for kids.